so great to be here where we eat dinner and lunch and breakfast with all of you. Um, do I want to say anything? Nope. <laughs> Visitor. I am dreaming of a house just like this one, but larger and opener to the trees, nighter than day and higher than noon, and you visiting, knocking to get in, hoping for icy milk or hot tea or whatever it is you like. For each night is a long drink in a short glass, a drink of black sound water, such a rush and fall of lonesome no form can contain it. And if it isn't night yet, though I seem to recall that it is, then it is not for everyone. Did you receive my invitation? It is not for everyone. Please come to my house lit by leaf light. It's like a book with bright pages filled with flocks and glens and groves and overlooked by Pan, that seductive satyr in whom the fish is also cooked. A book that took too long to read, but minutes to unread. That is to forget. Strange are the pages thus. Nothing but the hope of company. I made too much pie in expectation. I was hoping to sit with you in a tree house, in a nightgown, in a real way. Did you receive my invitation? Written in haste before leaf blinked out, before the idea fully formed, an idea like a storm cloud that does not spill or arrive, but moves silently in a direction, like a dark book in a long life, with a vague hope in a wood house with an open door. So um, I just have this one sister, and um, I adore her, but she's super annoying. And um, I had this moment where I'm sure if you have sisters, maybe you can understand this. Um, I was talking to her on the phone, and she just kept yammering about total bullshit, um, what was on sale at Target, or who wants to hear that? And so I was thinking, I wish I had, I want to talk to my sister, but not you. Um, I wish I had more sisters. I wish I had more sisters, enough to fight with and still have plenty more to confess to, embellishing the fight so that I look like I'm right, and then turn all my sisters one by one against my sister. One sister will be so bad the rest of us will have a purpose in bringing her back to where it's good with us, and we'll feel useful and she'll feel loved. Then another sister will have a tragedy, and again we will unite in our grief judging her much less than we did the bad sister. This time it was not our sister's fault. This time it could have happened to any of us, and in a way it did. We'll know she wasn't the only sister to suffer. We all suffer with our choices, and we all have our choice of sisters. My sisters will seem like a bunch of alternate me, all the ways I could have gone. I could see how things pan out without having to do the things myself. The abortions, the divorces, the arson, swindles, poison jelly. But who could say they weren't myself? We're so close. I mean, who can tell the difference? I could choose to be a fisherman's wife since I'd be able to visit my sister in her mansion, sipping bubbly for once, braying to the others who weren't invited. I could be a traveler, a seer, a poet, a potter, a fly swatter. None of those choices would be as desperate as they seem now. My life would be like one finger on a hand, a beautiful, usable, ringed, rung, piano and dishpan hand. There would be both more and less of me to have to bear. 
None of us would be forced to be stronger than we could be. Each of us could be all of us, the pretty one, the smart one, the bitter one, the unaccountably happy for no reason one. I could be, for example, the hopeless one, and the next day my sister would take my place, and I would hold her up till my arms gave way, and another sister would relieve me. So I'm just reading some poems from um, my last two books, and then I'll read some new poems which are dystopian and scary and just gross. Um, so this poem is called I Have a Time Machine. That wasn't the poem, that was just my side. <laughs> I have a time machine, but unfortunately, it can only travel into the future at a rate of one second per second, which seems slow to the physicists and to the grant committees and even to me. But I managed to get there time after time to the next moment and to the next. Thing is, I can't turn it off. I keep zipping ahead. Well, not zipping. And if I try to get out of this time machine, open the latch, I'll fall into space, unconscious, then desiccated. And I'm pretty sure I'm afraid of that, so I stay inside. There's a window, though. It shows the past. It's like a television or a fish tank. But it's never live. It's always over. The fish swim in backward circles. Sometimes it's like a rearview mirror, another chance to see what I'm leaving behind. And sometimes like blackout, all that time wasted sleeping. Myself, age eight, whole head burnt with embarrassment at having lost a library book. Myself lurking in a candled corner expecting to be found charming. Me holding a rose though I want to put it down so I can smoke. Me exploding at my mother who explodes at me because the explosion of some dark star all the way back struck hard at mother's mother's mother. I turn away from the window anticipating a blow. I thought I'd find myself an old woman by now, traveling so light in time. But I haven't gotten far at all. Strange not to be able to pick up the pace as I'd like. The past is so horribly fast. So this is a poem called Artless, and I wanted to read it here because the poem is a strange one. It's, it's kind of all about subtracting and subtracting and subtracting in an effort to find out what is sort of the essence of us. And formally, every, the last word, in every, the last line in every stanza ends with the word less, sort of like trying to show how you're subtracting everything in order to find this kind of crux. Um, and I guess the idea being that the essence of being has to have something to do with making. Um, that if you bring us down to our essence, like we're, we're going to have to make something, whatever that is. And I think about Yvonne Renier, the brilliant filmmaker who uh, gave a talk and said something very similar. She said one of the most important things, human needs are not just um, you know, food and water and shelter and um, connection, but also to make that it's just as important, whatever that is that you choose to make, but to not ever make anything in your life um, is um, 
will deplete you. So this is Artless. Artless is my heart. A stranger berry there never was. Tartless, gone sour in the sun. In the sunroom or moonroof, roofless. No poetry, plain. No fresh special recipe to bless. All I've ever made with these hands and life. Less substance, more rind. Mostly rim and trim, meatless. But making much smoke in the old smokehouse, no less. Fatted from the day, overripe and even toxic at eve. Nonetheless, in the end, if you must know, if I must bend, wasteless to that excruciation. No marvel, no harvest left me speechless. Yet I find myself, somehow, with heart, aloneless, with heart, fighting fire with fire, flightless. That loud hub of us, meat stub of us, beating us senseless. Spectacular in its way, its way of not seeing, congealing, dayless, but in everydayness. In that hopeful haunting, a lesser way of saying in darkness. There is silencelessness for the pressing question. Heart, what art you? War, star, part, or less, playing a part, staying apart from the one who loves, loveless. There's a mistake in that poem. It bugs me whenever I see it. <laughs> Should have edited that, it's a mistake. Okay, so I'm going to read a part of, so these last two books, Our Andromeda, has a long poem, like a 30-page poem in there, um, which is sort of a very sad poem, which I only let myself write because I was not allowed to write it. Um, it was like a legal gag on me to not write, to not write anything, and um, so I wasn't allowed to write it, and so that was the only way I could let myself write it. That's what it takes. Um, and then this book has a long poem, which is about adolescence and desire and rape culture, basically. Um, so I'll just read a part of that. Um, I guess I need to give a trigger warning. I'll have a little bit of wine. It's, um, it's really not easy to, for me to read this. Um, and I never read the long poem in the other book either. But um, it al this long poem also has a lot of Duran Duran in it, which is fun. If you even know who that is, <laughs> everybody does. Um, um, but this part doesn't have Duran Duran in it, so you can Google it, I guess. Um, a 14-year-old girl doesn't have any idea how rare her own body is. She's only ever lingered over its flaws, ever since childhood ended around 524 days ago, eternity in reverse. She thinks it's worth nothing. She's not a place where treasures can be bought cheap or stolen. She thinks it's kind of sweet that someone noticed her, that maybe it's a sign she's lovable after all. 
because he's convinced her that his desire is hers and that being fuckable is a compliment. What I learned at 14 was that there was never a short supply of boys, 12 years old, men of 70, every age in between who were interested and willing and didn't even need to be asked to give an opinion on my fuckability. And no matter what I thought of them, it was their opinion that would never be omitted in the final tally of my total worth. And that nowhere in the world would my opinion of their fuckability, what a joke, ever be considered relevant in any circumstances or for any reason. I knew that men could walk past me and call me slut and nice tits and oriental pussy and I couldn't even complain about it because it was embarrassing and furthermore, bragging. Yes, if you told anyone, that person gave you a weird pinched look as if you'd just given yourself this lewd compliment and were fishing for more. If you told anyone that some 50-year-old man waggled his tongue at you out his car window, then stuck his index finger through a hole he'd made with his other hand, then how was he steering, someone was sure to ask with a doubting smirk. Driving slow past you as you walked on the highway to the mall, you were surely making it up. And it just made you look bad if you said it, as if saying it was what made it really happen. If you told anyone your own age that a big tall guy a little older than you whispered, I bet you're slutty, your friends would ask how he knew you, ha ha, so well. You're a virgin, haven't even kissed, because the only person you could tell was another girl like you who was so confused about what it all meant that we figured it must have meant nothing, since nothing was done about it and nothing about it mattered. If you told your mom, you wouldn't be able to go anywhere or wear anything halfway cool. If you told your mom, you'd be in Mary Jane's, and so would your 12-year-old sister. If you told your dad, well, this was unthinkable. You could never tell your dad. Telling your dad meant you were failing, a baby bird crushed underfoot after that first unsuccessful leap from the nest. Maybe it meant something was wrong with the nest or the branch was too high, but no one ever thought that. You were just a loser. It hurt when a man yelled out of a car, but there was no way to feel it. There was no synapse connecting wound to brain, no way to know where it hurt or why. It was inward, and if no one noticed, it just as well didn't happen. The wound was never compared to what might have blossomed there in a world where men did not throw cruel, vicious compliments at young girls. The wound was only ever compared to the worst case scenario, the car stopping, the duct tape, and the trunk. You didn't even have to say the word rape. It was assumed that's what the crime would be. What other imaginable thing could an unknown man in a car want with you? Your money? Your extorted promise to renew the municipal contract for the mob's energy company? Revenge for turning down his nephew for prom date? Just looking for someone to talk to? There's nothing else a 14-year-old has that anybody would want enough to commit a crime for. So you should be happy you just got yelled at. You should feel relieved and lucky and happy that the only thing you are valued for was not taken by force and was instead merely jeered at and threatened. When you learn that you are supposed to feel lucky and happy because you weren't raped and killed, you are already in this being truly, brutally hurt in a central, deep, and formative place. This is never admitted. This is never permitted acknowledgement. If you say this, someone will refute it. So I will say it here. We can't know the extent of the damage caused by the constant threat of rape, the mutations, the atrophy, emptiness, self-mutilation, isolation, fear, flying fucks, can seem defensive, bitchy, loca, now you are too damaged to have any say-so, so no wonder bad things happen. Everything you say is crazy. Even if nothing bad ever happens to you, whatever you could have been if not for this damage isn't real or considered valuable, so losing it is not a loss. You never matter. 
not your safety today or your potential. It never matters that every experience you'll ever have will be curtailed, limited, cut, and that you will participate in that with every sentence you speak ending in a question so as not to anger anybody who needs to be right. You know, you know that being right isn't worth being assaulted and killed. You learned it young. Maybe it kept you alive. When you are 14 and trying to become yourself and you learn this self is quickly becoming a target but you can't tell anyone, you dodge and go fast. Get it over with. You hurt yourself first so no one can do it to you. You choose to give your virginity to the, one to the first person who seems to be the kind of person who wouldn't take it in a mean way. You don't know if you felt anything. You don't know if you liked it or him. He's cute, maybe, but ugh, not really. You don't even recognize when you feel revulsion for him that this is the, not the same feeling as your near constant disgust for yourself. It feels the same. Something's wrong with you, and the world is normal. So I have some new work. Um, and it's like, you know, I feel like lately I've had to go to poetry kind of like, it used to be my place of wishful thinking. I used to sort of go there to escape and like be able to kind of create something that I wanted to be. And now I find myself writing worst case scenarios. Um, so I'll start a little bit light. Um, we're gonna go into a kind of futuristic dystopian world where everything is even worse than it is now. But start, uh, first I'll start with a found poem. This is a direct transcription of a conversation I had with my then five-year-old daughter. Simone is her name and she comes up later in, in, the, in the poems. So this is homeschool and this is a dialogue. Simone, what's emergency cash? Me, cash is money. So emergency cash is money you have in case you need it for emergencies. Simone, in case you have too much cash in an emergency, you might need money. Me, um, no. Let me see how I can explain it. If you have an emergency, you might need money, but if you don't have money, you'd use emergency cash. Simone, oh, if you run out of money, you can just get more money from the emergency cash that you have. <laughs> All right, this is our beloved infinite crapulence. In Indiana, in the era of hell wealth, way past deadline, someone on the account is sweating it, making metaphor from what is already unreal. And because he wants to go home to his farm-fresh slowpoke foam, grown cold, we are eventually diagnosed with winter and treated to this marketing copy off a tube of cream, undry your skin, or a rainforest for your face. I bought it. It seemed fresh and felt organic and like it would at least wetten me skin-wise. I can't feel my old ambition to be racked with anguish or to grow soft with loss. When I lose, I'm still so grateful. Does that make me a chump or a champ, eating victory muscles in the lamplight of my domestic tranquility? Gratitude often leaves me with nothing to say, as when I saw you in the toy store, I felt like a feral cat who knows only the dumpsters and the flu-scented sandboxes of now. Now that I'm happy, I suppose I have to break my own heart just to feel something. Another person with my name goes, with my same name, goes around impersonating others. Now everyone thinks I'm the imposter. I want to tell her, you know, you think you know me, sipping mahogany cider in the millionaire's billiards room, but there's such a thing as too much umami, and there's no way to rest forever and then go on. 
Someone once said, now that I'm happy, I suppose I have to break my own heart to feel something. I should remember that. I should stop praying to my dead self. I should pull out my earbuds and hear the world, my first love, my favorite store, without continually moving my oiled jaw hinge. If it's literal, it's obvious. Too literal, it's stupid. So why be real? I like a chemical mysticism performed with perfect innocence. The wet slit lit up and cut down the middle. A little spit, lip, a little bit split. Love in the candle shop. Wicked. Peeing into a plastic water bottle. Wasteful. These are scents. As is, these are perfume, these are perfume names. As is, luck be a lady, so spend your whole social security check on lottery tickets, be a gentleman. I want to smell like a ceramic wind in the canyon, a brittle lust, a red-headed remedy synonymous with flooding, a weather vane rusted stuck, a stranger's phalanges, the south mouth, fiercely phlegm, fun old lady, so parachute, and now we eat, the eponymous eating. Don't want butter, don't want salt. Dinner is thinner, but it's not my fault. We're having fungal celebrity of beef cheeks tomorrow, so get yourself hungry. For lighter fare, I prefer the soapish fish braised in its own frothing broth served with an aromatic retraction of statements previously made in the shade of a giant genetically muddled with fiddlehead fern infused with expelled chipmunk breath. I, I love this local company, especially because for every order, and this is so cool, they make a tax-deductible contribution to honor and support the world-famous Pacific Garbage Patch in your name. The home team. I liked Jane's team. I'd bet money on them, but it wasn't that kind of thing. Too disorganized, plus it was just lunchtime pickup winter ball with deflated gold bulbs and not enough of the good knee gel to go around. The kids were tough. The kids goofed. Jane shone. She worried that winter ball like a craft. Then, like it was nothing, she'd flipped it dead center while everyone else looked sleepy, sidewise, a full surprise every time. Her main move was always a low, private conversation with the air, then lightning knees you could never see. The rest of the team shot sparks on occasion. Tella's swift half-bank could rattle the shoulder of the thickest bulb guard, and the brain, a sticky girl in advanced graphmatics, had all the angles. We stood in the stands like snipers, trying to see what the brain saw, but never did till the fluke score landed from outer space, Jane again, invisibly. Some girls thought Winterball too mean street, too psychic. My oldest daughter could hardly watch, preferring hockey. They shared a season, so it was one or the other in our town. My younger daughter would rather ice swim, but even in her ice hole in the lake, her eyes followed Jane. Our hearts were in Jane's feet, her hands, all the bills we couldn't pay, the wishing for electricity and lit up screens of pleasure, the food gone rotten because no one could bring themselves to eat it. Jane gave us so many more chances to do it right this time. And the last part of that is film. Anyway, it turns out all the kids have to eat their own scabs <laughs> in the end, which I don't actually have. Sorry. <laughs> I thought I was so very careful.
Yeah, it's pretty. It's a sad ending. They don't have anything that we wanted to give them. Protein for you know for sports. Well, now I'm worried that I don't have. This is what happens when you when you read new stuff. You screw up. Okay, now I have all the rest. Um, this is also sort of set in that world of disaster, post-disaster. Wellness rituals. You never understood me until you watched me wash the inside of the well with clean well water and invisible soap, which dissolves the dirt and then clumps up and floats on the surface, suddenly iridescent. I net up the greening lumps, skimming. I leave the net out to dry. Within hours, the lumps are coagulated and bacterial, dirty heads striated with living question marks, leech pieces, worm eyes, segments of fertile sediment. Enough biomaterial to assemble themselves into flying animals, little glowing spitballs. They waver off into their new lives. I made them as surely as I made my daughters, without knowing how. I washed down the sides with sea sponge as far as my arms could go, then lowered myself in the bucket. Down there, I used my feet, scrubbed the stones and cracks of moss and slime, and what else? Dead water, new algae, legs of things. I held my breath against the earth perfume in case it was infected and spread my legs to straddle the diameter, my toes clenched on wet grit, my own holes amphibian as ever. Where does my water come from? From myself, you know. I am a self-cleaning animal, and my children were born, glistening under all the soft trees, leaving, breathing. You understand me now. The well was always clean. I clean it anyhow. It's no cleaner now than it was, but I am. So this is a scene called Irreversible Change in which um, for fuel we're burning metal art. Irreversible change. The metal fires could burn for days, glowing green without fuel, fearless. So much power had been wasted on finding power sources, those electric detectors we'd all believed in back then. They were orphans now, like us. No parent companies, no mama's lullabies. The metal fires were art, steel sculptures massive as ships, but not ship-shaped. Spirals and spires, coils and arches, vines and limbs, all gleaming with extraterrestrial symbols. Forms only an artist with funny, likely expensive access to divinity could understand. An artist takes utilitarian materials and diverts that use to mystery. So that was the source of its power. It could mystically hold flame longer than any other material. A post-apocalyptic menorah of sorts, but no one was going anywhere. A magical transmutation magically transmuted back to utility. A twice-told tale. What a strange glow it gave. Like a gargantuan spiritual phone connecting humans to the light they liked best. Electric-looking. Goddish. Exponential sun and stadium. So much art was destroyed looking for more power. Paintings hooked up to electrodes. Landscapes with visible landmines. Some of the better pottery bombed for phosphorescence for blaze in their glaze. Dancers were electrocuted by semi-accident, their choreographers' brains taken out for experiments that yielded only dead choreographers. 
They were the only ones who didn't watch their young stars leaping, contorted, flying up impossibly. The extension's brilliant, the velocity, coming down meat. Anyone who practiced their art did so secretly, and we all learned not to talk about our dreams, those visions, which could be misunderstood and burned alive. We gathered on hillsides and watched the green glow, each of us exploding with poetry silent inside us. I have two more of that same series. I have a lot more in that series, but I've selected these for maximum depression. If I don't read these sad things, they just sort of eat me alive, and I'm just trying to like share the misery. <laughs> it's called Honeymoon. It's so flat here, you can see everything. It's not romantic. Nobody can slip in or out in secret, and who among us has pumped the last worry through her heart? Collapsing into shade, I wished for more sons, endless daughters, a higher ratio of my people to other people. Why not want what I want? Since we used all the air conditioning, it's become impossible to think things through. Can you believe your ears? All the electric music in the world has been turned into handbells. I wish I had a cushion for my knees instead of gloves to keep the handbells pure. We can get used to anything. That doesn't mean we should. I went to a wedding where everything was outrageous, but trying to act modest by including very goofy elements, such as people in bear costumes and gold nuggets descending from the ceiling, only to be jerked up back up out of reach when people tried to grab them. Long ago, the matrimonial family collected a few eggs from each household in the village to contribute to the wedding cake. A pig for the dinner, a gift from a rich great uncle. Shortly after, there was a period of department store gift services and electro-synth harps for hire. Now we pick dandelions to make wine and pluck chickens to make fine the groom's cloak. He wants large brown wings. He wants wolf pelt for his loins. He wants, he wants, he wants. There's no end to what he wants. The bride is someone who has only ever served. No use asking someone who's had a true taste of freedom, whose eyes widened and whose pelvis thrust up unbidden. Better she be someone who might never know what she lost. It is as it ever was. How many centuries have brides, have brides been made and used in this way? How few centuries have let women be girls first, swirling as long as they wanted into their sweetness and sharpening into ripeness, only becoming women once full heavy love was possible inside and out? Maybe one, maybe not quite one full century. And I'll end with this one, Our Family on the Run. So this uses the real names of my actual real family. <laughs> um, and my son Cal uses a wheelchair. And um, this is a scene from my nightmares, and sometimes my waking nightmares, thinking about, well, thinking about all of it. Our family, oh, before I, before I start this last poem, I want to say thank you for listening. It's so quiet. Um, <laughs> it makes me feel really weird. Um, but I, I really, um, it's, a, it's a real honor to be here. And there's so many people that I've had such great conversations with and who I admire so much already, even having only been here for a couple of days. So I am, I am, um, so thank you. Our family on the run. 
everything organized around Cal in his wheelchair. He can't walk, and I can't carry him far. We'd have the wheelchair van as long as we could find gas. Simone in the side seat, Craig and me in the front, maybe paint a super soaker black to look like a real weapon, load the car up with water and cans of enteral food for Cal's G-tube, sleeping in the front seats, taking turns on watch. Simone curled up next to the gas can and Ziploc of batteries, her one stuffed animal we have to worry about something happening to, her only toy. And what if we lose the car? Running on some side road to Pennsylvania, airport, Atlantic, evacuation center, relocation camp, as yet unknown. Trying to buy a blow-up raft for four people. Can't take the wheelchair. Our stack of euros to buy four plane tickets. Can't take the wheelchair. On foot, trying to get to a friend's country home, promise of a bedroom. No way to call the friend for directions. A compass one of the kids got at a birthday party wound up under a car seat. Lucky. Simone can walk, though she gets tired, and I'd want to hoist her on my back if I didn't have to save my energy to carry Cal when Craig's legs give way, his back out. Cal, four foot six and sixty pounds of sweetness, who must be carried if we somehow lose that wheelchair, or the wheelchair breaks, or is stolen, or gets a flat tire, or rusts. It's red, a color Cal chose by smiling when we said red in a list of colors. No expression when we said blue, green, black, purple, or pink big smile when we said red. He had his choice and he made it. How strange that the color of his wheelchair ever mattered enough to anyone to offer him that handful of options. Simone is hungry. I give her a cliff bar, that 24 pack I bought for rushed mornings, and she drops half of it in the dirt road, which is covered in what, bone dust or atomized drywall? She grabs what she, drops and what she dropped and stuffs it into her mouth before I can stop her. Why would I stop her? The side of the road is the well-known gutter of desperation always included in stories about wars where many people have to move on foot to the next terrible place. No matter what the emergency, whenever people are forced to flee, you find, piece by piece, how their understanding of their situation changed. If you read the stories, you're supposed to find abandoned photo albums, suitcases, babies. The useless things cut out by sw survival's swift knife, dead weight, long gone. You never find food, bottled water, working flashlights, live batteries, shortwave radios. It's true what all those stories said, it turns out. Eventually, out of water and arms shredded, I carry Cal. Craig carries me, and Simone carries us all. Six years old, she is so strong and has some cliff bars stuffed in a bag. The notebook with all our information is long lost. She knows where she's going. How does she know that? She runs ahead and carries us, her heart pounding and breaking with the weight and strain of all of us in there. Thank you.